Welcome to another episode of Professors at Work at the American University of Beirut, where every week we talk with a faculty member or scholar at the university and explore the research they're doing, why they've chosen this topic, what they're finding, and why it matters to the rest of us. We're delighted to have this week Professor Muna Fawaz, Professor of Urban Studies and Planning at the Maroon Saman Faculty of Engineering and Architecture, and who is really one of the leading urban studies scholars in the, in the entire Middle East, and uh, very uh, innovative in many of the things that she and her colleagues and students have done. And we want to focus a little bit today on one of them, which is the Beirut Urban Lab, which is an extraordinary project that has tried to map every uh, housing facility and building in Beirut since 1996. Uh, Mona, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Rami, for having me. And tell us, uh, why did you launch the Beirut Urban Lab and, and w why does this matter to anybody? So the Beirut Urban Lab is uh, this initiative that a group of colleagues in the Department of Architecture and Design and myself started thinking about uh, over a decade ago. And it's uh, the convergence of multiple projects that we have been doing in which we try to both research and influence how uh, urbanization is happening in Lebanon, whether it's from the perspective of post-war recovery or building practices or public governance. One of our projects, which I'd really love to talk about today, is the Beirut Built Environment Database. Mm -hmm. So this is the survey that we have started about two years ago of all the post-war uh, building um, stock in uh, Beirut specifically as a pilot to go beyond both in terms of the city's urbanization but also other cities in Lebanon. All so, buildings, not just housing. And all our aim is to eventually map everything in the city. But uh, we started with everything that was built since 1995 because this is the database we managed to obtain from the Order of Engineers and Architects very mm -hmm. simply. And we went out and mapped all the buildings trying to collect environmental uh, qualifications, but also, and most important to my own research really, mapping where the money is coming from, what is being built, who lives in these buildings, who builds them, and how this ultimately is affecting transformations in Beirut. And um, this is uh, showing uh, some really strong links with global finance, right? Absolutely. So the entry point, the real research question was, uh, how does financialization, which is this trend uh, of neoliberalism that has penetrated cities like New York, London, and Paris, among many, many others, how does it affect a city like Beirut? And uh, many people imagine that uh, cities like Beirut are smaller and outside of the large capitalist trends. And so what we wanted to, see, to show are two things. First, that financialization is also happening in Lebanon. So we are seeing financial investments coming in the built environment and displacing in similar ways uh, people from being able to use land as uh, a place to live in, to work in, and instead turning these new apartments that are being built into some sort of safety deposit boxes where people leave their money safely. And what's very interesting is that there are uh, local trends in every context that sort of give a flavor to this financialization and that shape it in a particular way that allows certain actors to control what we call the growth machine. And so we wanted to know who are these actors, what are their linkages with the political class on the one hand, 
But then more recently we became very interested also with those households that are buying apartments on loan because that's the only way they can get it and who in the financial crisis are very stranded, having sometimes to skip meals so they can pay the mortgage back to the bank and hence raising all these questions about how linkages to, this, to these financial trends ultimately dispossess so many people, create gentrification and empty out the city from its ability to act as a development, as a development engine. Wow, there's so many dimensions to this. One of them I'd like to explore first, is, which you've already touched on, what you're finding is really strong linkages with the banking sector, government decisions, international finance, land use priorities. I mean, the, the, you can't separate these things. And we have a big crisis in Lebanon. And, and, and real estate investment, which has been so disproportionate, is probably one of the reasons, right? Absolutely. So it's at the heart of the current financial crisis. It's the central bank policies, essentially, but also some of the government policies and some of the laws that were passed since the early 1990s that tried to attract capital from the region to Lebanon to balance the balance of payment by encouraging people to buy real estate. And we see that the central bank begins to encourage uh, banks to invest in real estate, uh, or to encourage investments in real estate by giving all sorts of facilities uh, to developers uh, and, uh, and to banks, actually, for on the part of the central bank. So what this creates is this tendency to then use real estate as a place to store money and consequently speculate. Because our regulations encourage that, so for example, if you keep your apartment vacant, you're actually exempted from taxes, which is completely counterintuitive if you compare it to other cities around the world that, are, that, that overtax you when you leave an apartment empty, you find that there's huge incentive that comes directly from public agencies to use this, uh, this real estate as a speculative stock. And that works exactly like the investments you place in the, the high interest rates in the bank, because what it does is it discourages the use of the spaces as lift places, as workplaces, and instead it raises their prices. It also connects the price of housing in Lebanon then to other financial markets rather than the real local income and makes it very difficult for people to have a home in the city and hence to work and live well. And what happens in, in the situation that we have now where the uh, market has the, the economy has collapsed, the currency has collapsed, the banking system has pretty much frozen up. What does this mean? That means two things. The first thing is the trend we've seen since uh, early October, which is when people feel the banks are threatened, they feel that an investment in real estate is still safer. And so we saw a major flight of capital from the banks into real estate. And while real estate had been completely stagnant for two, three years because it's so overvalued and everyone knew it, suddenly the real estate market moved. Today, what we're seeing is sort of a shifting of risk with people who have money in the banks trying to buy apartments. Um, but at the same time, we know that these sectors are so interconnected and both of them so overvalued that uh, it is inevitable that the price of real estate will also, uh, at some point soon, also crumble. Uh, the question is, who will pay the price of this crumble? Right? We have so many small-scale developers who were building uh, a single apartment building or two and had borrowed money from the bank. So we're trying to tell international donors instead of leaving this stock 
uh, to go in the hand of the banks and encourage this breakdown, support those guys on the condition that the stock they've produced becomes affordable housing. So we create a housing policy that capitalizes on the breakdown of the sector instead of letting everything just go down. These are some of the ideas we're trying to work with. So there's a strong social justice component in and what you do, and I know one of the things you've done at AUB, you had the Social Justice in the City program at the Assam Faris Institute at AUB, and that's still uh, Absolutely. doing, doing uh, really... It, it is the motivation, and it's the motivation very much from the perspective that it's an economy you need to build that's an inclusive economy. So social justice is not just charity or we just help this little guy, but we build cities that have provisions to be inclusive and to generate economies that are redistributive, where people can access land, where you have big assets like a free coast. You remember that project we had worked on from social justice and the city, which is now really being pushed with every decision maker, so that that coast becomes the economic engine that so many people can use to build their own small shop, small restaurant, and so you don't have just two or three resources controlling the sea coast. Always the idea is the city can produce an inclusive economy and be an engine for the recovery of uh, the country. Well, the issue of the coast uh, brings up another dimension of the, your work, um, the issue of advocacy. So you don't just do research and analysis, you also advocate through your own work at AUB, with your students, through civil society groups, different, uh, different ways. Looking back over the last few years, how do you assess your attempts, you and your colleagues, at advocacy for these issues? Do you have any breakthroughs uh, on the uh, seafront issue and, and other issues? I think what we've managed to do on several issues is uh, create uh, a consensus among uh, the urban majorities uh, that some of the ways in which the cities manage are very problematic and to create momentum behind uh, demands like a free unified coast, open to all, like the right to housing. So, But I think change comes from an ecosystem of change that needs many actors to be working together. And so maybe over the years, what I've come to realize is that we need to work within that ecosystem and feed it. And our role as a university is really to produce the knowledge that can be used and adapted by activists so that it can be taken in other places. So we have to also produce the capacity, the know-how, the ability to generate that research, and then wherever possible to put our weight behind that knowledge so that we can uh, influence decision makers. So we pub I publish, my, I think it's very important for me to be an academic because it allows me to have the intellectual frames through which we can ask the question and think through maps of power and what's the right way to uh, cut through them. But then it's also important for us to write up ads, to publish our work in local newspapers, to translate our work in very understandable form in Arabic and distribute it as flyers, uh, give it in public talks. I'm, like, there's not a week that goes by that I'm not giving a talk in the order of engineers, in a small NGO, sometimes on the street. But we tried as much as possible to create these linkages so that our knowledge is very much informed and in conversation with colleagues elsewhere, but also um, immediately impactful and responsive to the emergency of the city we live in. In Lebanon and many other Arab countries, we're dealing with power structures and decision makers and policy makers 
who essentially feel they can do what they want. Uh, they don't really feel very accountable to the citizenry. What has been your experience and your attempts to engage with policymakers, we, either through advocacy or through quiet meetings or through political action work? Yeah, I, I think the most important lesson we learned over the years is that uh, that idea you learn in college that you produce a report and you give it to the decision maker and it's science and they apply the science, it yeah. does not work. Yeah. And I don't think it really works anywhere, but it definitely does not work at all in our context. So what we have to do is we have to identify causes that have resonance with activist groups and work in a way that we come and say, yes, uh, we are university professors, this is the research, but we know that research is also being used and advocated by people who find it meaningful outside. And what I've found is that when there are echoes to what we're trying to do, uh, as scholars from activist groups and people on the ground with whom we are always in conversation, then the causes become much more successful. You can look at the recent uh, decision to cancel the Basri Dam, for example, which required the activists to talk to the World Bank, to talk to the funding of the World Bank, but at the same time to have university professors being involved in uh, producing the science that demonstrates that the dam was a bad idea on multiple grounds. And three, that coming together that eventually forces one of the politicians to say, okay, I think I made the right, wrong decision. And just a statement like this will trigger then municipalities being able to distance themselves from the project and ultimately the project being undermined. I think we're very close to getting a breakthrough on the coast as well, also because there's been so much advocacy around it on multiple issues. So there's a, uh, a lot of readiness among decision makers to be more responsive to this issue now. You and others at AUB uh, have worked uh, in, in the past with Beirut Medinity, which was a a very pioneering attempt to get into polit electoral politics uh, and w with other elections coming up, whether municipal or national, do you anticipate more such organized attempts through the existing mechanisms of uh, electoral, uh, let's call it electoral politics? It is ultimately the only peaceful means of change people have. It is to use the ballot box and work through it. And uh, I think city planning is beautiful in the way it can reconcile people with politics because as a city planner, you can put the image of a desirable object that people can then imagine. And you can help bring them in a way that's way more comforting than when you talk about geopolitics or a financial breakdown, where it feels like it's out of your reach and people feel disempowered. And it's often easy to destabilize them because you start saying the numbers are wrong, as we witnessed recently in the financial report. In this context, what Beirut Medinati, I think, demonstrated was the possibility to bring so much, so many people back to the political mm -hmm. because they could associate with simple demands like the right to housing and then a trajectory for how you get them. So we provide the roadmaps for you can produce affordable housing if you do one, two, three. You can get public space. You can get better mobility if you follow this trajectory. And I think people really are very ready to follow a project and a plan that tells them how it works. Everyone is convinced that things don't work in the country. I don't think even politicians say it every day. So you have the burden is on people to organize themselves electorally with a project and individuals willing to carry uh, this project. I, I have strong hope that there will be more movements coming in and being formed to carry uh, new initiatives. And what do you think is the impact of the uh, recent 
uh, situation in Lebanon in particular since last October and before that, uh, the economic steady economic decline over the years, the protest movement, the corona pandemic, um, massive uh, increase in, in poverty and um, rising prices, all of these things must have huge impacts on the urban fabric. Yes, of course. I think uh, one of the things that uh, we are seeing on a daily basis is the breakdown of, uh, of Beirut's infrastructure. Streetlights have not been working uh, for the last few months because the funding that used to come from park meters that also stopped because people stopped respecting mm -hmm. uh, them and uh, basic and contracts were not renewed means that uh, it's harder to move around the city. Uh, I know that also the financial financial uh, breakdown has caused major problems in terms of how uh, the companies collecting solid waste are being paid and they've also decided to stop waiting, pay, working. Yesterday uh, I uh, went to see the newly appointed uh, city governor to ask him about all these issues and propose that we form an advisory committee of people who would be willing to support him. He was very uh, open to the idea but he would tell you that with the Lebanese pound losing currency so fast, he's unable to do one contract with any company because companies are refusing to settle on a price, knowing that it takes time for a public uh, contract to be paid back. They have a sense that the Lebanese pound would have no meaning. So definitely I foresee that things will get way worse before they get better. My fear is that with hunger and anger and the way in which uh, the system is still controlled by some of the same political class that has controlled the country over the last years, that they may end up strengthening their hold over people rather than losing it. We did see it a little bit during the pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, uh, perhaps uh, the breakdown will uh, push people also to question some of their uh, most uh, Held, held beliefs over the last 30 years that have really demonstrated full failure, I mean, in your face. So have to remain hopeful some, somewhere. To, so you've touched on so many different dimensions, financial, uh, aesthetic, uh, justice, uh, uh, food, um, hunger, etc., political participation. So what this suggests to us that the whole idea of urban studies and planning is not just professors sitting down looking at models of buildings, you're talking about sociology, politics, economics, water quality, engineering, etc., etc. There's uh, even philosophical issues of justice and responsibility. So how do you gra grapple? So how do you grapple with all of these dimensions? And does your being at AUB help you because you can tap into all these existing departments. There is no way you can teach city planning if you're not in a university uh, like AUB because uh, it has all these wonderful colleagues working on small pieces of the puzzle that you can then bring together. There's also this incredible chance we have to be in a city as crazy as Beirut, right? That's a lab for us that we study and that we work with. And these are definitely some of the strengths we have uh, in being able to teach city planning. For me, uh, it was really about reinventing a profession when I came to teach here. It's impossible to teach city planning to students who are going to work in the country 
country, the way you would teach it in the U.S. In the U.S. they have a census. We don't even know how many people live in this place. So we had to really over the years invent a major, a major that would be able to bring all these questions together and train people with tools of intellectual inquiry and the possibility to link a good question to a, re to a reality so that they can really be effective in it. And I think this is one of the nicest uh, achievements uh, to me that I've done being at the university in the last 15 years. It's being able to demonstrate how meaningful city planning is and to encourage so many young people to actually come into this major and really use it as a space in which they can bring together all these issues and make a difference. Wow. And we're really seeing our students make a difference. Uh, that's what I wanted to ask. What are you noticing in terms of the kinds of students who come to your program over the years? Have they changed and, and what, what motivates them and what are they doing after they graduate? Well, you know, AUB uh, very much uh, invests in the master's programs uh, with uh, bringing in students who are less privileged, who may not be able to go through its undergraduate program and who would have done their undergraduate education in the Lebanese public university or other smaller uh, pr private uh, universities. And so we really teach in these graduate programs the best students coming from these other universities. In, in addition, to some of our own and sometimes a few uh, international students. So the graduate program is the different laboratory than the main image people often associate with AUB. And many of our students leave the university to go out and try to make a difference here, to form small companies where they consult, uh, for municipalities, for public agencies, and for the private sector. They're also leading in the local private sector. The head of the planning unit in Dal Handasa is our graduate. So they're in the private sector, they are in private companies, they're, they're, they're really distributed one-third, one-third, one-third across NGOs, private, and those who leave and go into education and do PhDs. My main sadness is that about two-thirds of my master's class at MIT back in 1998 is working in the public sector in the United States, while in my 15 now years of teaching, I have only taught one student in the public sector, and the first thing she did when she graduated was to leave the public sector, and she was oh immediately hired by the public sector in Qatar, of course. Yeah. So that's our sadness, because planning is about the public, and right. we want the public to invest in this. Right. We have time for one last question. What's your next project? So the next project is to expand the Beirut Built Environment Database into Greater Beirut and connect the infrastructure and create a 3D model of the city that can allow us to map pollution and mobility with colleagues in engineering. We're very excited about that. Well, you've got a lot of work and you're doing great stuff, so keep it up. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Munafa Wes, Professor of Urban Studies and Planning in the Faculty of Engineering and Architecture at AUB. Uh, thank you to our listeners for being with us. This is Rami Khouri saying join me again next week for another episode of Professors at Work, where we talk to AUB scholars and faculty about the research they're doing, why it matters, and how it's going to make our world better. See you next week. <laughs>